Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode 54 with your hosts, Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky from Choose Boston. And joining us today is our guests. Garrett Hogan, Max Taylor from On Point Capital. What's up, guys? How are you? Not too much. Another day in the life. Yeah. All Thanks for being a little flexible with the time. I was fighting some fires this morning. That's oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Eversource decided yesterday that they're going to show up today after waiting six months to put in our electrical service. So could be worse. Yeah. Well, at least we have power. So that's good. That's like a good thing to have happen because I don't know, second to closing day, getting your utilities turned on and connected properly is like the second happiest thing that happens on a project. Oh yeah, it really is. Tooth and nail to get anything done. <laughs> so you guys been busy, huh? You, so, what do you have going on right now? You have a lot of projects in the pipeline. And, wait, and in be, be, before we move off utilities, one thing I've never been successful with is like buddying up with the guys actually installing. I'll bring pizza. I'll get them coffees in the morning. And I'm always like, hey, can I get your cell phone number? Like I can call you on the next one. Maybe you just help me get a little further ahead. No, they're like, we have nothing to do with where we get scheduled to go. I would love to help you. You could give me thousands of dollars. I can't assist. Yeah, I know what you're saying. I actually grabbed uh, one of the younger kids' cell phone numbers and was texting him and saying, hey, like, do you know when you guys are coming back? And he's like, oh, I have no idea. He's like, they tell us the day of, and I just go by that. And I'm like, all right, well, <laughs> at least you're a nice guy. Thanks. You may, never see the sa- you may never see the same crew twice in your entire career. <laughs> exactly. Well, they're all subcontracted, at least with the gas company. I don't know. I think Eversource brings their own crews, but... There's got to be an expediter, quote unquote, out there somewhere. I haven't met him yet, but it seems like no under wraps. Yeah, it's like no matter who you are in the city, it's like you're just doesn't matter. National development or you know, on point. You got to know the people in the back office. I'm guessing because they're the ones setting the schedules. Maybe I think we're starting to broach to to border on some dangerous waters here. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean, people doing favors for you for things in return? As long as it's a favor, <laughs> it's not a, a bribe, but that's, that's the line. Yeah, I know, I know. Okay, let's get back to my original question. So you guys, you're busy, right? We are, yes. Uh, we got a lot going on. We have four projects underway. So it's keeping us busy. We have one in South Boston, two in East Boston, and one in Chelsea right now. Cool. Do you want to tell us a little bit for our listeners here you know, about, about you guys and how On Point came to be real quick? We, uh, we started back in 2017. Max and I actually used to work at uh, another development company here locally. And we kind of got to the point where we're like, hey, I think we're ready to kind of do this on our own. And so we decided to kind of part ways and start up on point. And we've been kind of busy ever since. I met Garrett at that other shop. And my background actually had nothing to do with development. I had done software sales for about five years and did some investing on the side. I kind of knew real estate from a very, you know, remedial standpoint. And once I got to know Garrett and kind of learned a little bit about the development game, I really fell in love with it and decided that that's what we wanted to do going forward. So, you know, in our first, our first year, we picked up actually a good majority of the projects we have now, as you guys know, these things take forever. We, we had a really good year, the first year of acquisitions, which kind of set us up to have the projects we have now. Yeah, these things do tend to have a long gestation period. 
But so tell us about your South Boston project had a, had a couple uh, bumps along the way in, in terms of entitlements and permitting that. You want to speak to that and how you guys were able to kind of uh, get over those hurdles? That's putting it very charitably. Yeah. <laughs> a couple road, road bumps, you know, speed bumps. Yeah, so, so that was an interesting project. It was a, a large three-family built in the 1800s with a carriage house in the back. Um, and the carriage house is actually two stories. It's where they used to store the hay for the horses. And there was actually a little trap door. And so you'd open that and shovel the hay down for the horses to eat. It was kind of a cool piece of history. And, you know, we knew South Boston was tough. iPod was in place at the time that we bought it. So we knew it wasn't going to be a cakewalk, but we decided to buy it anyway. And um, <laughs> made the classic mistake of seeing that carriage house in the back and just thinking it was super cool. And you fell in love with it. Fell in yeah. love. We did. We, we, we engaged in the cardinal sin of real estate investing where we had a completely emotional purchase with no practicality towards it whatsoever. We don't regret it. We're, we're happy we ended up buying it. But in any case, we, from the beginning, knew that we weren't going to try to tear this big, beautiful building down and try to maximize the lot. It was a 5,500-square-foot lot. If you go by the FAR, that's an over 10,000-square-foot building that we could have built. Um, but we really wanted to try to make it work with the existing, at least, exterior facade and, and structure. So we proposed four units there, essentially the three units that were already existing, a very minor addition on the third floor to make the units kind of all the same size, and then actually building out the empty space above the garage and the carriage house for the fourth unit. So we uh, we went through the typical Southeast zoning process, and uh, after... The first neighborhood meeting was pretty clear that we weren't going to have much support for this project amongst <laughs> our, our neighbors. To say the least, yeah. And, um, you know, but that that's to be expected. We eventually got it approved after one deferral uh, through the zoning board. So the, the mayor's office was in support. And we had a couple of the city councilors that didn't support it, but didn't reject it either. They kind of took a neutral position. And... After it was approved, you know, we go through our typical 20-day period, and on the very last day, uh, we got a notification that we were, in fact, being appealed by our rear neighbor. So the, the you, lawsuit... You got was, served? We got, got served. served. Yeah. Damn. Damn. Yes. So appeal is another word. Like, so he he filed a lawsuit, right? He didn't just... Like, that's, how, that's what happens, correct? Correct. Yeah. Well, te- technically, you got, you got served. We did. That's right. Yeah. And don't they say, you know, if you haven't been sued yet, you haven't been in business long enough? <laughs> yeah, indeed. So yeah. we just decided that, you know, in the first 18 months of being in business, we we're going to try to check all the boxes. So <laughs> lawsuit being one of them. <laughs> Was it dramatic? Was there like a sheriff that comes and brings it to you like in, in the movies or how did that go? Not at all. It was uh, this stoner looking kid. He didn't even really know where he was going. He just like happened to be walking down our hallway and looking lost. And me as a nice guy was like, oh, hey, can I help you find something? And he's like, yeah, I'm looking for on point capital. I was like, oh, that's me. He's like, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wow, face. Yeah, should have kept my mouth shut. You know, <laughs> If he didn't serve you on that last day, would it be considered invalid if they didn't get to you till the next day? Do you know? Unfortunately not. Um, it's actually up to you to check in, in the court records to see if, if you've been appealed. They don't actually have any guidelines as to by when they have to notify you. There's just guidelines on 
you know, when they have to submit it. So, you know, it's really up to you to kind of make sure that you're in the clear before you proceed much further on a project if, you know, that, there's been some issues. That would be an amazing legal strategy to just like go to the Bahamas. Like, okay, it's been 19 <laughs> days. Like, I'm going to go to Vermont. Don't tell anyone where I am. Yeah, it's sort of like getting a parking ticket on your windshield and just throwing it away and assuming <laughs> that it'll just go away because it's not on your windshield anymore. That doesn't, what? That doesn't, so what? That doesn't work. <laughs> So what happened after you, uh, after you were served? I think at that point we hired lawyer number three <laughs> for a project. So um, we needed obviously somebody to represent us in the litigation. You know, we had our closing attorney, our zoning attorney, and now we had our litigation attorney to help us through this. So was it one of your, was it a group of people that were suing you or appealing or is it just one individual abutter? It was one individual abutter. It was our rear neighbor. Um, yeah, he actually tried to get our other abutters to go in with him on the suit and they declined. And, you know, essentially it was his last ditch effort to try to throw a wrench in the project. And uh, it was unclear as to really what bothered him the language in the lawsuit was was fairly entertaining to read in terms of you know the harm that we were creating by you know simply just adding square footage that was already there essentially building out interior square footage we weren't really building anything that was going to taller taller denser you know so it was it was a challenge for him to come up with with real harm and ultimately what ended up happening was we ended up settling and i think that really had to do with the you know, our attorney did a really wonderful job of outlining to his attorney that, you know, look, I understand you don't necessarily want this project happening behind you, but the reality of the situation is it's not going to negatively impact your quality of life and you don't have standing or, you know, ground to stand on for this particular case. And so, you know, we were able to reach a a settlement relatively quickly in the grand scheme of things. I mean, it, it delayed us, it delayed us probably six to seven months just that piece of it alone. So it wasn't without its pain, but we, and then COVID we, happened. And then yeah. COVID happened. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, a worldwide pandemic after a uh, lawsuit <laughs> is always what you're looking for. Yeah. You know, who was really happy about that was uh, the bank. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. Cause they were happy to collect that monthly mortgage payment <laughs> for all those months. I feel like we just kind of stepped on the third rail and we've, we've sort of avoided talking about it for like 52 episodes but we might as well take a step back and maybe just do like a high level, like, you know, what is an appeal? Uh, you're, you're granted zoning relief. And then there's this 21 day cooling off period, AKA appeal period. And uh, during that time, someone withstanding, that's like a very particular word, typically in a butter within 300 feet has to show harm. And, uh, they actually don't sue you. I think they sued the city who granted variances. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, it has recently become more difficult. These things were, are always thrown around or, and they can be very frivolous, but I think Ray is more the expert than me. To talk about appeals? <laughs> yeah, I mean, just that SJC decision that came out recently. They sort of increased the burden on someone to actually- Yeah, there was a Supreme Judicial Court case that just came out and it, it, was, you know, it wasn't in the city of Boston, but it had to do with the appeals process and showing harm, like you said. I believe the specifics of that case were obviously, again, quite different because it was a very suburban environment. It was, I think, somebody with three acres of land trying to build a house on the empty lot, and the neighbor was complaining that it was going to harm them and all these other things. But 
basically the court said, you know, what you're claiming just doesn't hold up. And so it took, I don't know, that was in there for probably a couple of years, I think, but it, it did get struck down. And to your point, Mark, you know, it makes, it does set some precedent that you will need to prove your actual harm when you're going to go forward with a claim like this. And it, it probably needs to be specific and it needs to be quantifiable or, or, you know, something along those lines before a judge would make a decision on it. But yeah, I think some of these I mean, things go all the way up. Yeah. And the other thing to keep in mind is that it's going to cost someone ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 anyway to, to file such an appeal. So they have to be pretty committed to this. That being said, you can always get sued and, and, and appealed. And for that reason, best advice is do not close on real estate that requires a variance until that appeal period has expired or ideally mm-hmm. until you have a building permit. Yes. Very so, good advice. As painful as the process is. private way and remove all of the utilities from the building. <laughs> right. That's a separate issue. <laughs> I was going to say, at least our process has these pain points kind of upfront before you get the permit, because we've talked about it before, like DC, you can go, go grab your permit for a project. And then if anybody has an issue, they can supposedly just go and say something and they slap a stop work order on your project and you've got to sort it out. But I mean, you've already set up a loan own, you've already started the work, you know, you've committed the funds. So that I feel like our process, while it's painful, isn't the worst. Yeah, it's good to at least get it out of the way and kind of know what the future looks like. I think one important distinction though that we actually didn't talk about was um, our only zoning variance on that was for maneuverability uh, within the existing garage, meaning someone who parks inside that existing carriage house wouldn't be able to do a three-point turn coming out of it. Aside from that, it was completely by right. So that's um, kind of what gave us the confidence going into that, thinking like, oh, okay, if this is the only variance that we need, like, you know, the neighborhood should be on board with that. But it's also important to show you that even the smallest minute detail that you don't think is a problem to anybody actually can be grounds for a lawsuit too. So uh, I think it's important to make that distinction that it's not just density. It's not being three feet from your neighbor as opposed to 10 feet. Like it, it can be really anything, anything that violates the zoning code. So definitely something to, to keep in mind when you're looking at these projects. So on the topic of trying to do all the things on your checklist within your first 18 months, you're doing a modular project. Yes. Yeah, that's correct. We, we were all up for experiments, I guess. Um, <laughs> we decided that um, for our project in Chelsea, we wanted to try modular. We had been doing some research about the industry in general and seeing a couple buildings pop up in Charlestown and Somerville, particularly on my commute on 93. You know, I watched these buildings kind of come up out of thin air and was just really intrigued by the whole process. So we started doing some research as to, you know, what's involved and who we need to hire, talking to different builders. Um, and we ended up finding a group out of Pennsylvania that had done a handful of buildings in Dorchester and East Boston already of a similar size and scale to what we were proposing in Chelsea. So we thought that, you know, no time like the present, let's figure out if this is a, an interesting path forward. And I think both Garrett and I, as we're you know, new in our business, although it doesn't feel new, it feels like it's been 10 years, as we're new, we really want to try out these different levers within the industry to figure out 
what's the right path forward for the business. And modular was certainly one of those levers that we wanted to, to pull and see if we could make either a, a good part of our business or at least something that we want to continue doing going forward. And so what's, what's the, the process? Wait, so now that you're 90% through, is this something you want to continue with going forward? Well, you know, I'm, you know, I, I, I have the building of background, right? So I was always skeptical. I feel a little bit like we were selling out, but actually as I learned more and more about the process and, you know, the controls and how it doesn't generate as much trash, it's much more green, it's much safer building, you know, I kind of came around on it. I think after doing the first one, I think that we have to do at least one more just to put into place all of the lessons that we learned on this first one. It would seem foolish not to at least give it another try and, and see if we can improve the process from the first one. But I think the you know jury's still out until we do the next one. What are some of the big takeaways that you had from, from this one? Yeah, so I think, and, and I'll just... Real quick, echo Garrett's point. I think that you know the verdict is definitely still out. The biggest takeaway is that you're you're building this building virtually first before you actually build it on site. So the amount of back and forth of the builder and the architect and really planning every little minute detail is is a lot of upfront work. So you're sort of transitioning your typical work where you'll be on site making decisions to making all these decisions in the office space first because you don't really get a chance to make any modifications after the go button is pressed. And I think that's one of the biggest takeaways for us was that all of that planning and details, which we thought we did a fairly good job of uh, ahead of time, are just exponentially important. I mean, decisions that we made back in November and December are affecting us now. So that's kind of the biggest, I guess, learning curve and, and hurdle you need to get over if you're thinking about doing a modular. I think the answer- What are some of those things, for example? Sure. So for instance, you know, we want- Coordinating mechanicals. Yeah, coordinating mechanicals. (laughs) Service connections, things like that. I I think what Max is, the point he's trying to make is a lot of people kind of look at modulars, maybe an easier option, but really need to be paying attention and really make these decisions because you- like once the boxes are done and on site, like you can't change anything. You can't modify it. So like for somebody who's thinking like, oh, like this module is going to be so much easier. It's actually not, I would say. Yeah. Or somebody that's thinking, oh, I don't have a construction GC background. So modular is a good fit for me because I don't have to be a GC. The reality is that the amount of effort and work that Garrett had to put in in particular to even just make sure that the foundation lined up absolutely perfectly with where those boxes were going to go. I mean, that was what, Garrett, a couple of weeks of sleepless nights to figure out whether that foundation was uh, the, going to line up on Saturday. The Saturday. steel lining up was definitely yeah. a couple of sleepless nights. Mark, you know Gary over at Capone Iron. I think him and I were out on that site probably a dozen times, just checking, rechecking, measuring, just making sure everything was going to be perfect because the last thing we want is a $10,000 crane sitting in a parking lot that can't drop boxes because the steel's messed up. So your building had what? Had like a garage and then how was your building laid out? Because clearly it wasn't slab on grade because if it was slab on grade, it would be much easier or no? Yes. It's a good question. Yeah, it's so basically the from what we understand, the easiest way to do modular is, is a more traditional podium style where you have a steel frame garage, presumably, 
and you stack all the boxes on top of that. That allows you wiggle room, particularly for things like your sewer drain. Slab on grade is still a little bit sketchy because if that sewer drain doesn't line up with your main stack coming through your entire building and you set that box onto the ground, you're going to have some issues. And our building was sort of a hybrid, which made it pretty challenging, where we had two boxes uh, or four boxes for the first floor units at grade. And then we had boxes above that that were longer. And so to, to basically support that overhang, we had steel in the back of the building. So we had to make sure that the height of the first floor modules was exactly the same as the height of the steel. And the modules are being built in central Pennsylvania and the steel is being erected here on site in Chelsea, Massachusetts. So there was no room for error. It could not be a quarter of an inch, an eighth of an inch. It had to be dead on. Otherwise you can imagine what the building could have looked like um, if it wasn't plumb level. So those are the kind of challenges and, and issues that come up with doing modular. I also think to bring it back into what we would do next time, because I think as Garrett alluded to, we'd like to do it again But one of the biggest things we would do going forward is we would submit in the zoning process, you know, in the very beginning, we would submit a plan set that had already been a-okayed by the modular builder themselves. One of the biggest challenges our building presented was because we drew it traditionally using a traditional architect, there weren't factors or elements incorporated into the design that made it easy or feasible to be built modularly. And that provided a lot of challenges as well as redesigns after the zoning got approved. So the ideal scenario is you show up to the zoning board with plans that the modular builder has already basically agreed to so that you're not having to change it after the fact. And that's where you can really take advantage of the potential time savings with with a modular build. And you save some costs there with the architect as well? You probably would, yeah. Yeah. Our modular builder and a lot of these modular builders have engineers actually on staff that work for them specifically that do the designs, do the engineering work. And so allowing them to just create a set of plans in their office that, you know, they've all worked on and verified are going to work is certainly a better path forward. The other piece to the engineering component, which we didn't realize going into it, we now realize after the fact is that You know, when we have our engineers designing our foundation, they have their engineers designing their building. The two aren't done in unison. And so, you know, we ended up having to over-engineer our foundation to support some of the engineering decisions that were made in the building. Because if you can picture all these boxes coming together, the forces and the loads are all different than if it was stick-framed. And so the foundation thus has to be different. So going forward, the other component to designing the building at the modular level is so that the foundation itself and whatever steel supports are needed can be designed at the module level as well so that we're not having to you know, do more site work just to accommodate these boxes. So overall, from a cost standpoint, is it less expensive, just as expensive or more expensive than stick building? So for our particular project, it's a touch more expensive than our closest building, which would be our nine unit in East Boston. We're trending about 225 a square foot for the modular build all in, and we're trending about 215 a square foot for our nine unit in Saratoga. Granted, the nine unit in Saratoga is a lot, you know, we've just finished framing, so we're pretty early on. So obviously there's opportunity for that price cost to go up. But I think... Again, if we had to do it over again, I think we would get the cost basis to either the same 
or slightly less. You know, the industry standard and in what you're shooting for is about an eight to 10% cost savings overall. Part of why we didn't realize those savings was because of the extra work that we had to do to the foundation to support the building, um, as well as some decisions we made about you know, keeping open concept layouts, which required steel flitch beams running through some of the boxes. So there's certainly an opportunity to save money, but that's not the primary driver of doing modular. It would be the time savings. But as I alluded to, that only comes to fruition if you're able to go through zoning with your modular plans and essentially start as soon as you get your go-ahead building permit from the city. Well, so that's what that, my next question is. So you, you save, you know, your goal is to save 10% on the build side, on the hard costs, but then on the soft costs, like... That's challenging because Max and Garrett run so lean that whereas like a typical larger general contracting operation, I might have a burn rate of $100,000 a month, just a superintendent, a trailer, an APM, et cetera. So whereas like a modular requires much less of that overhead, you guys don't have, have as much of those costs. So I feel like the, the scale is kind of skewed in that way. Yeah, that's an interesting point, Mark. And I think I think you're probably right there. I mean, certainly I think when zoning takes, call it 12 months or a year in the city of Boston and any surrounding neighborhood, if you could get the total build time down to, you know, six months where you basically, from the day you get your approval to the day that you have a CO is only six months. Now you're building a building in a total of 18 months as opposed to 24 to 36 months. That's where I think the real leverage in modular can be, but everything needs to go well. You know, it's not, it's not default. Well, thanks for being the guinea pigs for our like group of friends <laughs> on this modular thing. I had one other quick question because I just want to clarify. You mentioned you had a, a modular builder, but was the manufacturer and the builder, those were separate people. So you had somebody, the builder that contracts with the manufacturer or has a relationship with the manufacturer, or are they one and the same? No, so they're actually one and the same. Okay. So technically, we would be the builder in that description there. Uh, right? Do you so. mean the setting crew? No, I. I think so right. The way that it's that traditionally made. done is like a builder will actually like if you're a homeowner and you want to do a modular project, you'll go find a modular builder, and then they'll go to basically like a dealer. So like that's like the person who actually manufactures the boxes. And then the builder will work directly with the dealer to deliver the house done to the client, to the homeowner. So, so, they, so you acted as the builder in that case. Got correct. It, got it. Yep. And then one other quick question was, um, and I'm just curious because I, I, you, know, you have all the utilities and you have all the wires and everything run throughout these boxes. How do they actually connect everything? Do you just have to have, are there little cutouts and holes where all your mechanicals are? And then someone comes in after it's delivered and kind of patches it together. Is it that kind of simple? Yeah, a couple of slip couplings and uh, some electrical repair connectors, and you're all set. Electrical tape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, no, unfortunately not. Um, for our building, it required a 17-man plumbing crew to be there for three weeks. It was quite the undertaking and, and certainly, uh, you know, a lot more work than we had originally expected. And a lot of it is because the first couple of days, they're just kind of tracing things back. They're doing testing, looking for you know, holes, anything that was running correctly. And one of our boxes, we actually had a hot water feed going into one of the toilets that just got crossed somehow. If you can imagine, that would have been quite the experience for somebody. 
nice little bidet right there, you know? It, exactly. So the, the, you know, the first couple of days is them just kind of going through and just really thoroughly expecting trace, uh, inspecting everything, tracing everything back and just making sure that everything is, you know, nice and tight and done correctly. So, and then unfortunately, if there is a problem, it involves opening some walls and, and looking for what they need to repair and, and getting that done. Fortunately, you know, and this goes back to the planning, we left a lot of access panels open. Um, so it was quite, I don't want to say easy because it was a tremendous amount of work for them to do it, but at least they knew where everything was and the plans were very detailed and such that they had locations kind of dictated for them. So it wasn't just like a, we have a leak, what, you know, let's start on one end of the building and go to the end. It was like, well, we have a leak and this pipe is here. So let's start here and see if we can find it. When you guys finish this build, we'll have you back and we can do a deep dive on everything modular because yeah. I think it's, it's an interesting topic. We'd, we'd like to explore more. But uh, in the interest of time, can we jump to financing these deals? So you guys left the last shop you're with, jumped out on your own and seemingly had three projects up and running. And, and this is a capital intensive business. So uh, tell us about how you raised that cash and what the keys to the success there are. Certainly wasn't our plan to take on so many projects right out of the gate, but um, the you know the laws of the shotgun approach to writing offers actually ended up working out in our favor. We got a lot more than we uh, anticipated getting. Momentum is a real thing. <laughs> so you know the the basic premise of this is you know as many real estate deals are you know using other people's money. Part of my background was you know studying finance and, and understanding a little bit about how investing works and, and how capital is raised at a high level. I'd never frankly done it before, but I sort of felt like I got the gist. And the way we decided to structure our raises was uh, based on the notion that real estate development, as you all know, is an inherently risky business and, an, and a risky investment. We just spent the last half hour talking about all the problems that can come up and problems typically result in, in money. So we run under a system that incentivizes us as the developer to be really conservative with our projections and benefits us when we, we do well, and it protects our investors' downside risk first and foremost. So you know, when we raise capital for a deal, we're going out to accredited investors, and we're essentially giving them an ownership stake in the project's profit. And the way in which we do it is such that if, for instance, we have a projected profit of a million dollars, let's say on a project, if I was wrong by a half a million dollars and the project only made 500,000 instead of a million, we still want to hit some minimum thresholds for our investors. Number one, getting their money back is the most important piece of it, capital preservation. And number two, making some sort of a return on that. So the way we structure it is uh, what's called a waterfall model. And I stole it from a friend of mine who works in the private equity field. It's a similar model. And the idea is that the investors in a deal own 100% of the project's profit until number one, they receive their money back. And number two, they reach an 8% return on that money. So Garrett and I don't get paid a dime until that's happened. Now, obviously the bank's been paid back all the hard costs, soft costs, all that sort of stuff. So we're purely talking about everything that's after, you know, the typical construction and soft costs in a project. After that first hurdle is met, we then drop down the percentage ownership of the investor 
to incentivize you know, the developer. So essentially, after they reach that 8% hurdle, they now own 40% of the project's remaining profit. That hurdle lasts until they reach a 12% threshold on their money. The final hurdle is then where we make money, and that's depending on the deal, anywhere between 5 and 10% is what the investor gets of the project's profit. So it's a little complex, but the idea is that at the end of the day, the investor should be receiving anywhere between 20 and 30% on their money, depending on the time of the length of the project, how risky the project was, whether there were entitlements in place or not, and all of those different factors. But what it allows us to do is, is conservatively project our profit. And if we're wrong, they still get the lion's share of the deal so that they're not harmed financially as a result of being involved. So, right. How does that compare to you guys? So it's a, yeah, wa- a waterfall. Yeah, I mean, I would say, so we kind of look at it not the same exact way. We, we're typically issuing mostly debt and then we might do a couple points of equity, but we also do what's known as points, just kind of like how a lender will, like an origination fee. And we're, our blended rate is somewhere between, it starts at 10% for the minimum investment, but we try and hit somewhere around 15. So, you know, guys, I think I'm going to, Take a look at what you're doing. You got some money, <laughs> some money you want to give us? <laughs> but that's now when, when you say the 20 to 30%, you're talking about a net return or an annualized return. I just want to. That's, that would be a net return. So okay. if it was a two year project at 30%, it's a 15 IR. Got it. Yeah. So actually, if we look at it that way, because I was talking about about 12 to 13 annualized. So we're, our net is probably similar. We're in probably the 20s. Yeah, we might absolutely. hit 30, depending on the scenario. Well, with that, I think it's time for uh, a quick game of overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. All right. Oh, I've been waiting for this. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you guys don't feel like we're big timing you with the uh, holding out for the invite on this podcast. Is this an episode of? Is that should that be underrated, overrated? <laughs> no. All right. <laughs> All right. Back to it. Elevators in uh, nine-unit residential buildings. Overrated, underrated, appropriately rated. Ooh, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, we're a little biased since we just spent a lot of money putting one in. (laughs) I think for me personally, thinking about it from the buyer's perspective, I think they're either appropriately rated or underrated, depending on who you talk to. I think they really expand the market of who you can sell your building to. Mm -hmm. Uh, my mother for instance bought a condo in the south end and it had an elevator and you know when she bought the place she said i never need to move i can stay here till i'm 90 you know god willing so i think that you know as we think about being developers and who we want to sell our buildings to an elevator just adds that extra element of being able to sell to really any age group and demographic real quick what did that elevator cost for your four five-story building all in with the uh, elevator shaft and the elevator itself, uh, we're right about 200 grand. Thank you. Not cheap. How about, <laughs> how about high-end windows in residential buildings? So like, you know, like a Marvin versus, you know, a lower end, lower tier window that might cost half the price. So I think you only have to put American Craftsman windows in once to realize that you should spend some more money on windows. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so not not to say anything bad about that, but just if you're trying to provide a high quality product, I think the windows are a huge component of that. 
single hung windows in a rental building is something that I would probably do, but I don't think I would do that in a condo building just because they're much harder to clean, but also just the sheer operation and then breaking, like you really just, you don't want to get callbacks because a window balance is broken because it's a huge pain to do that. It's hard to find somebody to come out and actually take, you know, dissect a window and replace it. The siding's all on, so you can't really take the window out. So it's one of those things where once it's in, like it, it needs to be functioning and it, it's hard to repair. So I think it's definitely worth spending some extra money on to get a higher quality window. So is that an underrating vote? Oh yeah, that was a long <laughs> way to say uh, underrated. Thanks, Max. How about en- engineered flooring and um, any preference in terms of how you like to install it or not install it? Well, that's not overrated, underrated. That's no, no, no. The overrated, underrated is just the engineered flooring, okay. and I just want to add my. <laughs> I little. would say appropriately rated, maybe underrated. And the reason why I say that is because with buildings these days, with trying to get the the sound um, attenuation correct, using gypcrete, things like that, um, you can't use your traditional nail down, you know, three-quarter oak. Um, so the engineered product is has a lot more applications. Uh, it can be used on concrete, can be used on gypcrete, can be used on wood floor, all of that. And it's a very stable product as well. Uh, you don't get the, the shifting and the moving as the climate changes. So I would say, you know, appropriately, maybe a little underrated. The only problem is if it scratches and you got to replace the single board and it becomes a big pain. But Dan knows all about that. I'll yeah. tell you what, I'll, I'll take the other side of that. When, when you have an engineered plank, you can surgically take that one out and put one in. If I scratch the hell out of like a, a finished in place wood floor, I have to go corner to corner, sand and refinish, take the furniture out. Um, yeah, no, that's a that's yeah. A but fair. if you glue, if you glue down a engineered floor, it's not easy to get it. No, out. I'm not okay. Agreed. Yeah, so that's why I asked. That's why I asked installation methods. So glue right. down or float. Yes, yeah. I've surgically uh, <laughs> removed and reinstalled a double glue down. So it's a layer of glue, a cork under layman and then another layer of glue, and then the engineering. So do that a few times, and <laughs> let me know how you feel. I mean, what, what we, what we, I mean, we just finished our project, and we used engineered for the first time. And I'll tell you, like, I was super nervous about doing it, but what I did was we just, it was the last thing to go in. Yep. Like, last. Everybody was out, minus, like, the painter touch-ups, and... I didn't risk anything um, in that project. So, you know, that's I guess smart. You, yeah. You know, as long as you, because as much as you can protect it, it's just going to get so good. Yeah. yeah. It's also hard to coordinate sometimes the sanding, staining, you know, three coats of poly when you're trying to get everything else done too. So it has an advantage where you can wait till the end and put it yeah. in. Too. We'll do an episode on wood floors. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my last one for you guys is. Open web joists. Oh, I, I mean, I like them. We actually just switched in Saratoga to high velocity HVAC systems because I am on a mission not to have a single soffit inside Respect. the building. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think they're really cool and they're light. They're, so they're easy to work with. You know, we had some pretty long lengths at our building in East Boston and, you know, a couple of guys kind of handled them pretty easily. 
So the hardest thing to do is get the crane there to, to lift him and crane him in. But aside from that, from a mechanical perspective, I think it's. You can run those through an eye joist though, right? Or are they too big? I see run mechanicals out. through? The high velocity uh, ducks, I guess we'll call them. Se- seven inch round hole. You'd have are to be. Seven? Oh. They're seven inch. I mean, maybe in the middle of a four, 16 inch something. Right. Yeah. You'd be pretty, have pretty big joist at that yeah. point. So how about uh, composite decking? Oh, I like the decks you guys are using, by the way. Island Mist. I saw that on your IG. It's not pebble gray. No, no, no no pebble gray here. That is a premium color. It's it's very nice. Yeah. Uh, Well, did you see the view? Yeah, the the view is nice too. But exactly, yeah. So we had to make sure we used a really nice decking there. (laughs) Yeah, I would say they're they're probably underrated or appropriately rated again, depending on what people's uh, enthusiasm for them are. But I have to redo my deck at my house and it's wood. And, it, you know, it's like, why would I wouldn't have to do it if it was composite? Yeah. So, you know, it just Indeed. sort of seems like a, a no brainer. Um, I do think though, that you have to be cautious about which you pick, you know, some of the composite decking that's like, you know, bright orange with really huge wood veining that looks like no tree ever would have, <laughs> um, is, is maybe a bit overrated. Um, uh, you know, don't try to make it look like wood. It's composite. Make it look like composite. Oh, wow. With that, that's that's our signal here. This yeah. has been an awesome episode. Thanks for joining us. You guys got to come back to do the uh, the modular episode and then a wood floor one, apparently. <laughs> I'd love awesome. to do the modular. I might fall asleep for the wood floor one. <laughs> <laughs> so Thanks, folks want to invest really with you guys, it. follow your projects. Uh, how should they do that? Yeah, well, we're, we're uh, obviously on Instagram at OnPoint Capital. Um, either Garrett or I can be reached at our first name, max at onpointre.com or Garrett at onpointre. Two R's, com. two T's. Yeah, two R's, two T's for no, Garrett. No E at the end. He's not Gary, despite what a lot of people call him. <laughs> Half our subcontractors. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Thank you so much, guys. It was a pleasure to yeah, be here. Thank you. Yeah, hey, glad we could do this. All right, guys. Good luck as you finish those projects up. Cheers. Thanks, everyone, for listening, rating, reviewing, and for sharing. Catch you on the next one.